wonderful. What a wonderful message and song. <clears throat> I love the, the line, love came down and rescued me. It reminds me of an illustration that I read. Uh, and, and this illustration, it, it has merit, but uh, I believe theologically it's flawed, and I'll explain that in just a few moments. Uh, the illustration was, was supposing you were, you were floating out in the, uh, in the ocean, uh, just treading water, and, and the seas were continuing to build, and the waves were, were continuing to get, to get larger and larger, and, and your demise, your death was, was inevitable. You were, you, were, you were drowning. And suppose there was a boat that came by and threw you a life raft. That, according to the illustration, is the picture of the gospel. But I think it's even greater than that. You know, the scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're dead in our trespasses. And it's not that, that, that we were drowning in the ocean, but that we were dead in a morgue. We had the toe tag. We were, we were, we were dead. And love came down and rescued us. Pulled us out of the miry clay. Pulled us out of the morgue. Breathed life into our, into our souls and made us alive. And in Christ, we are alive and we are new. And uh, I, I agree with Brother Mark. I think that some of those uh, words and some of the, the theology and some of these old great hymns are indeed unbelievable. But I, I disagree with him. I don't think that, that those words are the best. My favorite come out of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's the last verse. And while we have been transformed, while we have been saved, while we have been born again, this is, characterizes my life, and this may be why, uh, why, I, why they resonate with me so much. It says, O oh, grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We understand that God has indeed transformed us. He has indeed saved us. Yet our sinful nature draws us continually away from the God who has saved us. And so it is love that we rest in, love that we rely on because he did come down to rescue us. Amen. Thank you so much. If you have your Bibles this morning, I ask you to open up to the book of John, chapter 5. As we continue to look at the different miracles of Jesus, we look at, at all, of the, uh, all of the wonders and the, might, uh, the mighty uh, signs that he performed while he was here on this earth, how he raised the dead, how he calmed the sea, how he walked on the water, how he multiplied the fish and the loaves, how he did miraculous sign after miraculous sign. And last week, we looked at how Jesus took these, these water pots filled with dirty dishwater and he transformed them into wine, into that new wine which represented the messianic age, that age of the Messiah that was to come. This morning, John chapter 5, we're going to read one, uh, verses 1 through 15. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. <clears throat> and after these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. 
waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down to a certain, at a certain season in the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease which, was, which he was afflicted. And a certain man was there who had been there 38 years in his sickness. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. And he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am coming another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, arise, take up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well, and he took up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Therefore the Jews were saying to him, who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. And he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? But he who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd at that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse may befall you. So the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Let's pray. God, we ask this morning, Lord, that you'd touch our hearts and you'd speak to us. Lord, for there are many of us here who've been sitting by the pool of Bethesda waiting for some miraculous sign to take place in our life that we may that we may leave changed lord this morning may we see that jesus has already come that the healing is already there that he is the great physician lord and we've come here this morning with hurts with pains with with troubles with hardships lord this morning may we come to the cross and may we see that there's grace full and free Lord, this morning, may you speak to our hearts. May you encourage us. Lord, may my opinions and my convictions be set aside so that the truth of the gospel may encourage us. Lord, we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. How many of us know that, that regardless of, of whatever stage of life you're in, regardless of your background, that there is a desire amongst all of us for, for life changing experiences have you ever been to barnes and noble or books a million or uh all of the 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 different or borders or all of these bookstores and there's a huge section in probably the largest section in the bookstore and it's called the self-help section have you ever you ever browsed through the self-help section and there are books on on, on how to become a better mother, how to become a better father, how to become a better husband, how to become a better worker, how to become a better leader, how to become thinner, how to become, how to become more fit. There's, there's, there's an entire industry built on the idea that we all want to be better. We all want our lives to be changed in a positive manner. In fact, there is multi-billion dollar industry that that is not necessarily uh, a a very uh, legal industry that is designed on giving people an experience which promises will make you feel better 
The drugs and the alcohol industry is a multi-billion dollar industry that is, that is, is, that is foundational upon we will make you feel better. Some of the, the, the adrenaline junkies that we know put lots of time, money, energy for, for the thrill, for, for something, for a life-changing experience. They'll jump out of airplanes, they'll cliff dive, they'll base jump, they'll, they'll do anything for a life-changing experience. Some of these efforts are veiled as spiritual endeavors. You know, we we want to make our life better. We want to to to. In fact, there's a, a very popular uh, pastor who's written a book uh, that's topped the New York Times bestseller list called "Your Best Life Now." Well, I have some very very disappointing news for all believers. If your best life now is lived here on this earth, then you're not a believer. Because the scripture promises us that our best life cannot be now because we are plagued with sin, death, disease, pain, sorrow. So our best life can't be now. Our best life foundationally, fundamentally, as, as, as we as Christians believe, our best life is in that life that is to come. That life when our, our lives will no longer be marred with sin, no longer be marred with shame, no longer be marred with sickness, pain, and sorrow, but we will one day see as we are fully seen. We, our faith will one day become sight. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. Superstition, lies, self-help, it just changes in its packaging. If we read John chapter 5, there was a pool called Pool of Bethesda in Hebrew, and there was a superstition. How many of you, if, go, go, go back and look in your Bibles. Uh, at the end of chapter, at the end of verse 3 and at the end of verse 4, uh, there, there, there ought to be little brackets in, in, your, in the text. Does anybody have those little brackets in the text? You may need to get your, your, your glasses out and look real, real close. I see, uh, I see Brother Tommy looking for his glasses. Say, I, I, I can't see that without my glasses. There ought to be little brackets right there, right? And, and in that bracket, it says that, that the waters would be stirred by an angel touching the waters, and the first person who would get in the waters would be healed. Well, most of the early manuscripts don't include that text. Well, why is it in our Bibles? Because it was a cultural phenomenon at that time that, that there was this pool, and the pool was fed by some man-made aqueducts or some man-made reservoirs called, uh, called the Pool of Solomon. But they were also fed by some natural springs. And so periodic, periodically throughout the year, uh, these natural springs would feed this pool of Bethesda. And what would happen when the natural springs would feed the pool of Bethesda? The water seemingly spontaneously would become, uh, it, it would begin to move, it would begin to, to, to uh, as if water was being added to this pool and, and there would be movement in the water. And so the superstition was 
the, the, the mistaken belief was that, look, if you're the first person into the pool, whenever these waters are stirred, because they believed that it would be touched by an angel and that there would be some healing properties uh, that, that, that this pool would, uh, would possess, if you're the first person into the water, then all of a sudden your life would be miraculously changed. You would be healed. You would, you would, whatever affliction that you entered into the pool with, that, that, that you, would be, you would be freed from this affliction. Well, why, why not, why was it not, why was that phrase not included in the earliest manuscript? Because the people who lived in Jerusalem, the people who lived in and around that area, they knew this superstition, they knew the legend, you didn't have to tell them about it. But something happened in 70 AD that, that caused there to be, a, a difficulty for future generations to know about this, this phenomenon. The Romans came into Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem and all of the, the, the areas surrounding the temple. Well, what was an area surrounding the temple? This, this pool of Bethesda and the portico. And so as generations passed on, this text was still in Scripture, but, but they were losing the, the, the superstition that was associated with why this man, this lame man, was lying around this pool. And so many scribes that were, that, that were transcribing and uh, 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 writing and, and copying these texts, they added a footnote in there to remind the readers about this legend or this, this superstition that the Jews believed. And so after years and years of this footnote being added by scribe after scribe after scribe, it became part of the text. It was not part of the original text, but because the, the legend and the superstition had begun to die off with time, these scribes reminded the readers why this man was sitting at the pool of Bethesda. Now, this was a Jewish belief whether it was originated from pagans or whether it was originated from rabbinic teaching, we're not sure. But I want us to notice something very important. That this lame man wasn't the only one there. Look at verse 4. It says, uh, I'm, from, I'm sorry, verse 3. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Around this pool would be a concentration of the sick, the lame, the blind, the withered. This would be the place where, where if you were sick, if you were lame, if you needed healing, this is the place to go. And so surrounding this pool were many people who had a great amount of faith. The problem was their faith was misguided. See, we have an idea and it's prevalent in Christian circles today that if you just have enough faith, that your faith can heal you. I've even had people sit in my office and just cry and mourn and grieve because they were told by some pastor or some, some spiritual leader that the reason their loved one died or the reason their, their son or daughter passed away or the reason was, was because they just didn't have enough faith. 
And it just breaks my heart because the scripture tells us very clear that death comes because of sin. And it has nothing to do with our faith and that we are plagued with, with, with sin, death, disease, sorrow, pain, because sin plagues this world. And that, that the healing that God does is, is, is solely based upon His grace and His mercy and has nothing to do with our faith. These men and these women sat around and they had a tremendous amount of faith. The problem was their faith was misguided. They were believing and they were placing all of their faith and all of their energy and all of their, their effort into, into something that, that had no power whatsoever. They were believing that, that this superstition that when these springs fed this pool, that all of a sudden that they would be healed. You know, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are saved by faith. Go with me if you will. I want to remind us that it is indeed faith that saves us, but the reason that it is faith that saves us is because of the object of our faith, not faith itself. We cannot have faith in faith. We must have faith in Christ. Ephesians tells us, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, we read, For it is by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourself, that is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. But back up to verse 1. Back up to verse 1. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the courses of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the son on the spirit, prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, Paul's writing to the church, he says, We too, also formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So he says, we are born dead in our trespasses, we are children of wrath. But listen to verse 4. This is the best but in the whole Bible. This is the best but in the whole Bible, verse 4. It says, we were by nature children of wrath, children of disobedience, verse 4. But, but... God, being rich in grace because of his great love which, with which he loved us, even while we were dead in sin, while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. Do you see that? It is Christ that made us alive. It is his death, his burial, his resurrection that purchased us for eternity. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, when he's when he hung and he said, it is finished, it is paid in full, that his death, his burial, his resurrection paid the sin debt that we owed. And that while we were children of wrath, children of disobedience, Christ paid our debt on our behalf. And so faith doesn't save us, Jesus saves us. It is our faith in Christ that brings that salvation unto us. Keep reading, verse 5. Even while we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where? In Christ Jesus. In order that in ages to come he might show surpassing riches of grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Why does God heal? So that he may show the riches of Christ in us. Why does God bless? So that he may show the riches of Christ in us. It has nothing to do with your faith. Not because you believe more than the next person or because you don't believe more than the next person. It's according to the riches of God and his mercy 
in Christ that he desires to demonstrate in us. This man was healed, not because of his great faith. There were many people there who had great faith. In fact, he had sat there for 38 years with tremendous faith, and he believed. He believed so much that he lived at these pools because he didn't know, you didn't know when the waters were going to be stirred. And he lived there with no means of getting into the pool. He's sitting there. The waters are stirred. He's lame. He can't walk. He sees the water stirred. He sees somebody else jump into the pool. So he sits there. Weeks, months go by. All of a sudden, the waters are stirred again. He's looking around, looking for somebody to help him get into the pool. But he has no one there. Somebody else jumps into the pool. And I would imagine, in my mind's eye, the, these waters begin to be stirred. And then there's a mad dash. And who knows who gets there first? I was first. No, 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 I was first. It's like that, that race whenever you were kids. And everybody won. You know how you won whenever you were a kid? You got to say, ready, set, go. Because whenever you got to say, ready, set, go, that means you were the first one that got, they got, and you were the first one at the finish line. And so if you were the first one to see these waters begin to, to stir, you were the first one in. But there was no healing. There was no life transformation. Faith doesn't save us, church. Jesus saves us. Faith doesn't transform your life. Jesus transforms your life. Faith in the wrong vehicle is not salvific, but it's condemning. You can believe and you can be sincere as much as you want. And, and I love I love many people who are of a different faith. I love many brothers and sisters in India who are Hindu, and they believe sincerely, and they, they sacrifice, and they give faithfully, and they're sincerely wrong, and they're going to die and spend an eternity in a Christless hell unless there's a life-transforming encounter with Christ. And our friends who are Muslim or Islamic, they can believe all they want and they can have all the faith in the world. But if their faith is not in Christ, then they'll die and spend eternity in a Christless hell. Not because they're Muslim, but because they don't know Christ. Faith in the wrong vehicle, faith in the wrong medium is, is not salvific, but it's condemning. 1 Timothy chapter 2 Verse 5 tells us there is one mediator, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the person, Jesus Christ. So here's the question. Here's the question. Jesus comes to this man. Now, this man's been sitting at this pool for 38 years. Jesus asked him kind of a redundant question. Hey, do you want to get better? And you, you can almost see the guy's response. He's like, Seriously? I've been sitting here for 38 years by this pool in hopes that, that, that I may get better. He says, sir, there's nobody here to help me into the pool. Of course I want to get better. I've been living here at this pool. Jesus asked him a question. Do you want to be well? I wonder what our response would be if Jesus were to ask us, do you want to be well? Every one of us come comes here this morning with, with some kind of hurt 
some kind of burden, some kind of difficulty, some kind of strain, some kind of, of ailment, whether it be spiritual, emotional, physical. We come, but why? Because we live in a broken, fallen world. And our life is not perfect. Our relationships are not perfect. And so this morning, what would our response be if Jesus asked us, do you want to be well? Well, church, he's asking us, do you want to be well? Do you want to have a life-transforming experience? Do you want to find healing like you've never found it before? Do you want to find peace like you've never found it before? Do you want to know... Peace, healing, grace, mercy. What would our response be? Look at his response in verse 7. Very honest, very very open response. John chapter 5, verse 7. He tells Jesus, The sick man answered him and said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. When the water stirred, while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Very open and very honest response. Jesus then responds in verse 8. Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. Now, I want us to notice what takes place right after this. Here's a man who's been lying at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. I go to Walmart right here on O'Neill because it's the closest one. When I walk into the Walmart, there's about three or four people who are always the greeter. They're always the greeter. You walk in and you recognize them. I've seen them out at different places. I've seen them at the grocery store. I've seen them and and I recognize them and and you go to speak to them, but you know that you really don't know them. You You just recognize them as the greeter at Walmart, but you begin to recognize people. Now, imagine, if you will, You are a Levite. You're going to the temple every day. You are in and around Jerusalem. You're in and around the the marketplace in Jerusalem. You're passing through the portico there at the pool of Bethesda. You notice the same guy sitting at the same pool for 38 years. Now, I've been going to this Walmart for about eight or nine years, 10 years at the most. And I noticed the same greeter. Why? Because they've been there for the same, that they've been there for all eight, ten years that I've been here. This guy's been at the pool for 38 years. Notice the response when the Jewish leaders see this guy walking around. They say, hey, who was it that healed you? It's great. You know, somebody help you in the pool? Listen to their response. Look at verse 10. Therefore, the Jews were saying to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Do you get it? The guy's been laying for 38 years, been laying there at the pool, hoping to find some kind of healing. Jesus heals the guy. The first thing the Levites say to him is, hey, man, you're not supposed to be carrying your pallet on Sunday. It would actually have been Saturday. But he says, hey, you're not supposed to be carrying that. What? Are you kidding me? 
This guy's life has been radically transformed by the healing power of Christ. And the first thing the Jewish leaders say is you're not supposed to be carrying your pallet. When I read this this week as I was studying, as I was praying, it was almost as if the Holy Spirit hit me upside the head with a two-by-four. We see people come into Christ, come into the church. They've been plucked out of a life of sin, a life of, of drug use, a life of alcoholism, a life of, of debauchery, a life of whatever. And, and God transforms them. He saves them. He brings them into, into life. And all of a sudden, they're hungering and they're thirsting for God's word. And, and they show up on Sunday morning and they show up on Wednesday night and they show up on, on Sunday night and they're trying to figure out how they can serve and how they can do. And, and you know what we at the church say? Well, you know, you ought not to be living with your, your girlfriend, boyfriend. You know, you probably shouldn't have got those tattoos. You know, the, you've got, you know, piercings that, that you really don't honor Christ. We say to this guy, you know, you really shouldn't be carrying your pallet on the Sabbath. What? Now, don't get me wrong. Those who are in Christ ought to begin, the longer they walk with Christ, they ought to begin to look like Christ. I'm not saying that, that, that you can't have a tattoo and you can't have piercings in your face. But hear what I'm saying. As you walk with Christ, your life ought to emulate righteousness ought to emulate holiness if somebody's living with their spouse six years after they got saved something needs to change if 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 somebody is continuing to to look like the world five ten years after they've they've become a christian something needs to change there needs to be some 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 sanctification there needs to be a a desire for holiness but when someone gets is lame when someone is dead and is brought to life we as the church ought to rejoice with the life transforming message and life transforming power that is in the gospel we ought not to fuss at them because they're carrying their pallet amen if we can't say amen church maybe we need to say ouch when jesus does a work in people's lives sometimes it takes a little while for the Holy Spirit to bring about conviction in other areas of their life. But we as a church need to demonstrate the love of Christ. We need to lovingly, gently, kindly be that, that reproof and that rebuke that brings about godly change in their life. There'd be Pharisees and fuss at this guy because Jesus healed him. Now, Sanctification is indeed a process. I want us to notice uh, as we look at this, this idea of legalism, God's concern is always the heart, church. The purpose of the Sabbath had nothing to do with Saturday. It had nothing to do with Sunday. The purpose of the Sabbath is twofold. First of all, it is to, it is to build in a, a definitive time that we set aside to honor God and give Him praise and worship that He is due. Secondly, it is for rest. I mean, you know if you work seven days a week, eventually you get tired. It is for rest for us. Later on, we see Jesus says, Was not the Sabbath made for man, not man made for the Sabbath? 
God gave us the Sabbath as a blessing to, to encourage us to honor the Lord and give Him praise and to give us rest. Sanctification is a process. Now, I want us to notice verse 11. The guy who got healed is just like us. Have you ever noticed that, that the national pastime is not baseball? It's not even football. It's transferable blame. We get it honest. Whenever Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God shows up and he says, what'd you do? Adam said, it was that woman you gave me. Looked at Eve, Eve said, oh, it wasn't me, it was that snake. Just, just pass the buck. The, the Democrats blame the Republicans, the Republicans blame the Democrats, everybody blames the Libertines, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's always somebody else's fault. You know, I, you ask your kids, you know, the, the first, the, something's broken, the first thing out of their mouths, I didn't do it. Transfer of blame. Notice what happens in verse 10. They said, hey, you're not supposed to be carrying your pallet. Verse 11, he answered them. He says, oh, it, it was him who made me well. He told me to pick up my pallet and walk. They asked him, they said, well, who is this? Nevertheless, the fact guy's been healed after being lame for 38 years. They want to know who it is and what does this guy do? He passes the blame. He minimizes the healing. He doesn't say, seriously, guys, I've been lame for 38 years. And the first thing you're going to do is say to me, why am I carrying my pallet? He minimizes healing. He passes the blame. But I want us to notice verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. Now, back up. Back up to verse 5. And a certain man was there who had been there 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition. And Jesus initiated the conversation. Who was it that initiated the conversation? I just told you. Jesus. Jesus initiated the conversation. He went up to the guy and he says, hey, do you want to be well? The guy says, of course I want to be well. I've been sitting here for 38 years. Jesus says, arise and take up your pallet and walk. And look at verse 14. I'm sorry, verse, yeah, verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus goes and finds this guy. Jesus initially pursued him. Jesus continually pursued him. Church, aren't you glad that it's not up to us? Aren't you glad that God didn't wait for you and I to pursue him, but he began to pursue us long before we even had a clue? I'm so thankful that when I was a 13, 14-year-old snotty kid with a mouth like a sailor and, and throwing bricks through vacant houses windows, that, that, that God didn't wait on me to pursue him. But he sent the neighbor kids to invite me to some youth group function. And he began pursuing me. While I was a sinner, he began pursuing me. He began to have these people invite me to church, have these people invite me to camp, invite me to retreats. And just because I didn't have anything better to do, I said, yeah. And God began to pursue me. But not only did God begin to pursue me, I am so thankful that God never stops pursuing me. And even after I fail, and even after I have epic failure after epic failure, and I'm not the father I need to be, and I'm not the husband I need to be, and I'm not the pastor that I need to be, that Jesus continually pursues me. And he says, Preston, I refuse to leave you alone to be who you are, but I am insistent upon changing you and transforming you into be 
who I desire you to be. Amen? This morning, maybe you're not here because you've never been healed. Maybe you're here because, because you were healed, you were transformed, your life was, was radically transformed. But the first opportunity you had to give God praise, you said, oh, it, it, it was you know, just some flash in the pan. Maybe here this morning, God is continually pursuing you. So here's the question I have. Look at the last verse, verse 15. After this man's confronted again with Jesus, it says, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And if you read the text, it it was almost as if he's tattling on Jesus. But I want to remind us, Philippians Philippians chapter 4, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 1 tells us, verse 18, it says, Paul says, I would rather Christ preach, whether it's in truth or whether it's in pretense, I glory that Christ is preached. And so it doesn't matter that this guy was telling on Jesus. What matters is that this guy was telling about Jesus. And so here's the question I have for us. Has Jesus changed your life? Has there been a life-transforming, life-changing encounter that you've had with Christ? Whether it happened instantaneously in one moment or whether it happened over a season in your life, have you come in contact with the creator of the universe? Has he healed you? Has he transformed you? Has he saved you? Have you come to the place in your life where you know that if, that if you stood before God today that, that, that you would be counted righteous because of what Christ has done? The scripture tells us that we are sinners, that we, we stand before him guilty, but that Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sin. Has there come a time in your life whenever you've placed your faith and trust in what Jesus has done and found healing, found salvation? If so, then we need to tell people. We need to tell people. Revelation 12, 11 says we overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony, and we love not our life even unto death. If not, I want to invite you to come to the great physician this morning. Or maybe this morning, maybe Jesus is continually pursuing you. Maybe you've tasted the healing that comes from Christ. You've tasted the life-changing message of Christ, but you've had failure after failure after failure. And you said, you know what, preacher? I've been saved. I've been baptized but my life in no way resembles what it ought to. I'm here to encourage you this morning. Jesus is still pursuing you. And he desires for you to come to Christ. He desires for you to, to be the husband and the father, the wife and the mother that God has called you to be. And he's ready this morning to give you grace and mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus still pursues us. I believe this morning that there are those whom he's pursuing right now. I believe there are those who have never tasted the healing power of Christ. They've been to church. They've been wet in a baptistry. They've been a member. Maybe they were raised different denominations. But it's not about 
Baptist, Presbyterian, Catholic, Methodist. It's about a relationship with Christ. He says, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. This morning if God is speaking to you, if he's pursuing you, may you come. May you come and find healing. You're sick because of sin. Jesus said, I will give you rest. He promises to take our sin our burdens and give us his righteousness if that's you this morning I want to invite you to come there's some of you out there this morning who've been saved you've tasted the healing that comes with Christ but you failed you failed to be what God has called you to be and that makes you human I'm encouraging you this morning Jesus is still pursuing you he wants you to come be a part of his church. He wants you to come be a part of what God's doing right here at Redeemer. If that's you this morning, I'll invite you to come. Maybe you simply need to come to this altar and grab someone to come pray. May you have the freedom this morning to be obedient. Lord, may your Holy Spirit move in and amongst us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.